Welcome to the OT Lifestyle Movement. This is for the occupational therapy visionaries and the ones who see things differently. We're moving our profession forward through living and leading a truly holistic lifestyle. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the OT Lifestyle Movement. I'm Rhiannon Crisp, occupational therapist, personal trainer and founder of otlifestylemovement.com. Today, we are talking all about stress, anxiety, and the occupation of worry. And I'm super pumped to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Anderson. Sarah is a pediatric and mental health occupational therapist, university educator, and program developer. Her areas of specialty include addressing anxiety, emotional and self-regulation, social and emotional development, and trauma-informed care. She has helped hundreds of individuals learn to overcome their fears, manage their anxiety, and lead meaningful lives. Welcome, Sarah. Well, thank you for that beautiful introduction, Rhiannon. How are you? Amazing. And even more amazing knowing that we're stepping into this conversation. Yes. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. So I'd love to hit the rewind button to start with and get a little bit of your backstory and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Sure. So I found OT because I had an uncle when I was a sophomore in college, I had an uncle who fell from a deer stand hunting and he sustained a C2 spinal cord injury and then a TBI. And at that point I thought I wanted to be PT. And then when he was getting his therapies, I was able to see more of what an OT does. But then at the same time, I had this intro to kinesiology course and an occupational therapist had come in as a guest speaker. And after she came, I was like, this is the profession for me. You know, it was just the mixture of everything I was hoping for. And actually what I had thought PT was going to be, but then I realized it was really OT. Um, and then, you know, life just kind of had its course. So fly to OT school, ended up in Arizona, um, have been here ever since, worked in home health for a while, pediatric home health, and then um, worked at a school for the deaf um, for a few years, which was really wonderful. And that's actually where I started to see the impact of trauma. And more or less, the individuals that I worked with, um, while everybody on the campus I was at signed, most of the students went home to families that did not sign. So they essentially were living in this languageless environment, which as I'm sure you all can realize would, you know, result in trauma over time, just inability to communicate and have your needs met. So I started looking into trauma-informed care, became extremely passionate about it, um, then moved into a university position teaching. And at the same time, I got a job, part-time job at a child advocacy center. And that's where I really um, started working in the area of childhood trauma and then anxiety. Because essentially when you are working with individuals who've experienced trauma, you're addressing a lot of anxiety because they're very co-occurring, um, especially where you know in the brain it's happening. You can't work with one without the other really, especially when it comes to trauma. So that's kind of how I you know, found myself in this area. But um, I think that so many individuals experience anxiety on a regular basis. And it's often not talked about until it becomes a, you know, quote, disorder. And it's this huge problem. And then you go to a mental health therapist and, you know, you engage in CBT or maybe they recommend medication or, or whatever it may be. But anxiety is so normal. 
we're wired to feel anxious. And I think when people can understand the neuroscience behind anxiety, it's so empowering and can really help people manage it and then really live like their optimal life. And that's kind of my dream for everybody is to be able to do all of the things they hope for and dream for, regardless if they, you know, experience anxiety on a regular basis. Mm, can't wait to dive into it. I'd love to get your definition of anxiety. What is anxiety and why is it occurring? Yeah. So anxiety is this feeling that we have in our body and there's like two parts to it. So there's the feeling the you know, the interocept awareness piece of what does anxiety feel like in your body? And then the cognitive component of recognizing the emotion of anxiety. So anxiety is essentially it, it derives from the amygdala in our, in our brain and it's a fear-based emotion. So you only feel anxious when you're fearing something. And I think that's the most important part to recognize or remind yourself if you're experiencing anxiety is you're feeling this feeling because you're scared. Your brain is telling you something is dangerous and that you need to make a plan to get rid of this feeling and protect yourself. And anxiety is a protective mechanism as well. We're wired to feel this way as a means of survival. We're the descendants of the worry people, if you think about it that way. Mm, and what you've described there is something that's all too familiar in our day-to-day -day society and this modern fast-paced world that we live in, isn't it? These feelings of anxiousness and worry. It's so common. Yeah. And if you think about it, the example I really like to use a lot is, you know, you think back to pre prehistoric days, you know, there's a, a woman and her family lives in this hut and they build this hut by the stream. And then maybe the stream starts to overflow with water, right? And then you get this feeling in your body that tells you something is wrong and you start thinking about it and you're like, oh gosh, what's going to happen if the river floods and then it drowns my, or it takes over my home and what's going to happen to my family. So you get this feeling to tell you do something, you make a plan, you move your hut and then all is well and the anxious feeling goes away. But I think in today's society, we have so many different triggers that cause us to feel anxious when we're not in imminent danger. And the pandemic is the perfect example. So many of us are totally safe right now. However, we feel this constant state of worry because of the what ifs and the unknown. And we have to make the conscious effort to not perseverate on our worries because we will consciously feel anxious. And then when you feel anxious, it can really suppress your immune system and, you know, have a cascading effect on your physical and your mental health. So, um, and you'll never get rid of anxiety. You'll uh, we'll always have some degree of anxiety. I mean, imagine if you drove on the freeway without some level of anxiety, we would, we'd have no sense of danger or safety. Um, but there is a point where it, it isn't healthy anymore and it's, it's consuming your life. There are all different types of anxiety, right? What, what are, what are the different types of disorders that we're seeing today? Sure. So there is, there's separation anxiety, which is more common in littles. And there is a degree of normalcy with that. But then obviously as they get older, um, in typical development, kiddos are able to separate from loved ones, caregivers, parents, and then specific phobias, which is like a phobia of a snake or a phobia of a spider. And if we want to think about that, um, obviously I'll, I'll probably talk about the neuroscience behind anxiety, but those are very amygdala based, right? You see a snake, panic. You don't have to think about it. You don't even think in your head, huh, there's a snake in front of me and maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it's not. It's like this very visceral sensation, very automatic response. 
And then social anxiety disorder, um, which is um, self, very self-explanatory, but very common. And then, and that is more um, cortex-based too, where you're thinking about, I wonder if people will judge me. I wonder if I'm going to fit in more of, you know, quote unquote, imposter syndrome, things like that. Panic disorder, agoraphobia, which is an anxiety, an anxiety disorder that's characterized by symptoms of anxiety in situations where the person perceives the environment to be unsafe. So say you're on a plane and you start to panic, like have a panic attack because you can't get out of the plane. That would be more agoraphobia. And obviously all of these disorders would have to be, you know, happening frequently in a certain amount of time. And we as OTs would never diagnose it, but the, you would look at the DSM and then a psychologist or psychiatrist would be able to diagnose a specific disorder. And then the last one is generalized anxiety disorder. And then that is just more, more of a, a, a general disorder given when people are experiencing chronic anxiety that isn't due to any of the other um, disorders mentioned above. Mm. And so even though there is this underlying expected level of anxiety in our system that you talk about so we can safely live our day-to-day -day lives, I do feel like in this world today we are more highly strung we are more stressed out we are more anxious and on the edge why do you think this is why are we so so like this as a society these days i think there are so many different reasons i think technology has a lot to do with it i mean you can scroll through instagram and probably see something semi-traumatizing on a daily basis and not even attend or intend to see it um, look, I even think back to, I was on Instagram the day that the Beirut explosion happened and I was watching it. Like it was maybe posted eight minutes after it happened. I must follow someone that lives there. I can't even remember what account it was, but I saw it happen. It was so traumatizing even just to see, and I wasn't expecting it. So I think, you know, and then the news constantly have bad news pouring in and it's almost like we're addicted to it. And I remember um, when I was working daily with um, two of my good friends who are psychologists, we would talk about this a lot. And there is a term, and I cannot remember what it is, for people that almost seek that more like, you know, traumatic response. Like watching movies where there's like all the horrible things happening or those, you know, real life crime podcasts where people get really excited about that. Um, we almost have, we're like wired to like, find that enthralling. And then I think lack of exercise has a lot to do because exercise is a very protective factor around the amygdala and lack of sleep. Sleep does the same thing and is, in so, and is so important. And then diet, drinking water. I think um, those are like the most important things that people are really missing, which really fits into your lifestyle movement, Rhiannon, because it's just so important. I'm going to harp on that throughout this podcast episode. Um, and then I just think we've become natural worriers. We have a really hard time letting go of things that we can't control. And I think if we as a society, and you know, for those of you who are listening, if you can come to learn and accept that there is only so much you can do to them, so much you can control in your life, and you have to let go of what you can't, you're gonna experience a lot more anxiety. But I think that's another contributing factor. Mm, 
Interesting and so spot on. I resonate with everything that you just said then. And taking it back to the technology, I find that really interesting because we do live in an age where we're totally bombarded with bad news all the time. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen post about this pandemic that it is the end of the world and nothing like this has ever happened. And it actually has like the Spanish flu was horrible and very much, it was a pandemic and they didn't have technology at that time, you know? And I think we forget that this isn't the first pandemic that's ever happened. It's just the first modern day that we've lived through that, especially the United States and more developed countries have experienced. So it seems so much more catastrophic, I think. And there's so much more negative news than positive news coming out. And I think we all really need to be mindful of what we're choosing to take in and who we're choosing to surround ourselves with during this time. Absolutely. And any time for that matter. Like I don't remember the last time I watched the news. If I'm going to watch it for a specific reason, you know, it is for a specific reason. But otherwise, it's just death fire, destruction, terrorism, totally bombarding you every morning. And that's the last thing that I want to do when I wake up is watch something like that and just be impacted with those negative feelings straight away in the morning or the last thing before I go to bed at night. So really being intentional with the information that you're soaking up. And then absolutely what you said, like we're not moving enough, we're not getting enough sleep, we're not connecting enough, we're not eating enough of the right foods. We just need to go back to basics. If we can cover the foundationals of living well, these everyday occupations that are foundational to our health, then we're going to be doing a heck of a lot better. Yes, I so agree with you. And I think occupational therapists so um, really can address anxiety. And I think we've always strayed away from anxiety because people say, well, how can it be occupation-based? And I'm thinking because everything that can combat anxiety is an occupation, exercise, sleep, preparing healthy meals, ensuring you're drinking enough water, mindfulness. I mean, yoga, there's, I mean, I, the list goes on that it's like, I just think we as OTs need to get better at advocating and articulating why, and then really studying and understanding anxiety and how we can be effective in our treatment strategies to address it. Mm, absolutely. So what are some of the physical symptoms someone might experience if they're experiencing anxiety? What might it present like? So it, in, in, there's a whole range and it just depends on the person, but some common ones are, you know, racing heart, um, increased heart, um, heart rate. So faster, but also feels like it's beating harder. Stomach. Anxiety is very visceral and you may feel sick to your stomach, like there's a knot in your stomach. And it's hard because if you think about it, excitement and anxiety are both can be in your stomach. And I always think about this. So like I feel, I feel both in my stomach. So when I'm excited though, it's more of this like pitter patter, whereas anxiety is like this constant raw feeling that I just can't get rid of. Um, uh, dizziness is really common. And then actually anxiety can become so bad where you start to have like serious physical, um, manifestations like numbness in the arm. You may be paralyzed, um, in a certain area of your body if it's so bad. I mean, the brain body connection is just so strong that oftentimes people mistake these physical symptoms for something being structurally wrong, where it's just anxiousness. Um, even chronic pain, can sometimes be a sign of anxiety and or trauma. 
Um, often chronic back pain is actually most often, it, it, so long as you get um, everything checked out and it's been shown that nothing is structurally wrong, chronic back pain is very much associated with um, trauma and anxiety. So that's important to know. And then, you know, headaches, insomnia, decreased appetite, um, bowel issues, like going to the bathroom a lot, um, can be all associated with anxiety. But there's like a whole, a whole array. But those are probably the most common that um, the clients I've worked with have said they experience. Mm. So it's essentially something that occurs in the brain in, in terms of our perception of something and the stress that we put on ourselves, but it has this massive flow on effect to every system in our body. Like you were describing the heart, the breathing, the muscles. And so it just goes to show how interconnected our body is. And we need to be looking at the person as a whole and working with the person as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And anxiety, I mean, it very much starts in the brain, but then I like to, you know, anxiety starts in the brain, but it lives in the body, you know, and if you don't treat the body-based symptoms, you know, you, you can't just treat the, you know, well, and it's hard because you treat what's going on in the brain, you're going to treat what's going on in the body. But so CBT is a great example of absolutely extremely effective depending on what's going on but you also have to address the physical symptoms that the person is experiencing as well. Mm. And I love that we have the capacity to do that, right? And we can look at mind, body, spirit, that we yeah. are such a holistic profession. And I really feel like we can be stepping up and doing more in this area. Completely agree. Mm. Let's talk about the brain because I know you love this. What's going on at the level of the brain when someone sure. experiences anxiety? Well, it depends on what the trigger is. So there's two neural pathways for anxiety. Okay. One is stimulus. So everything, everything that you see, that you feel, that you hear, that you smell, that you move within, right, is a sensory stimuli of some kind. So as you take it in, it can go through the thalamus and then it either goes to the cortex or to the amygdala, depending on how triggering it is for you. So here's an example. You are at home and your partner is out of town and you think you hear the garage door opening and you go, hmm, they're not supposed to be home right now. I wonder what's going on. But you don't go into a panic state right away. You start thinking about it and you're like, oh my gosh, what if someone's breaking in my garage? What if they taste something? What if they hurt me? And then you start to develop this perception of intense danger. So that is an example of cortex-based anxiety, where you, you hear a noise, you're processing it in your cortex, you have this perception of danger, and then the cortex initiates the response to the amygdala to be activated. So the, the cortex can initiate anxiety, but the amygdala is the part of your brain that always truly creates the anxious response. And then it, um, it um, initiates the, it then um, tells the sympathetic nervous system to react as well, which is why you get the increased heart rate, the breathing quickly, the stomach, the visceral, you know, reactions. The second pathway would be, you know, stimulus and then thalamus and then the amygdala. And that would be more almost like a, like a phobia response or a PTSD response where you see something, you panic, initiates an, an anxious response in the amygdala, and then it activates the sympathetic nervous system to react. So those are the two neural pathways um, 
that, you know, anxiety can be developed through. Mm. And did you do courses around this or have you done a lot of reading? Like OTs might be saying, where do I find out more about this? I want to learn more. Both. So I've done a lot of continuing education. I took a certification course in anxiety. And then um, I just have to brag on Dr. Catherine Pittman a bit. She is a psychologist. Her work is amazing. So if you, and um, actually when I did my online course, the Occupation Worry, I used some of her content. Obviously I um, went off track. I didn't copy it by any means, but I um, did get permission from her to utilize some of her concepts because she is just an incredible woman and has done so much for the area of anxiety that, um, so she's actually got a really great book out and I can't, Rewiring the Anxious Brain is part of the title. Um, but yeah, so she's a huge reason why I, I just fell in love um, with studying anxiety and why I'm so passionate about OT, um, being a part of anxiety. And then actually when I had emailed her for permission, she was extremely supportive and loved that OT was getting involved. And she's like, I love OTs. She's like, I've worked with OTs before. I think it's so important more OTs are doing this work. Um, so yeah. Mm. So, so there are lots of courses out there and OTs can actually become certified in anxiety. So if anyone's interested in that, I highly recommend seeking out more continuing education. Mm. And then lots of, um, lots of uh, reading on peer-reviewed peer journal articles. And then also my work at um, the advocacy center really set me up to as well, being able to really work with it, see, see it. And when I was at the advocacy center, I co-treated hundred percent of the time with mental health therapists. So I was really able to work in their world and they were able to see my world. And, um, I was really able to see the value of OT working with anxiety and all that we can offer. Mm, amazing. Okay. So in terms of our role as an OT, then how do we hold space for our clients instead of jumping in and quickly trying to fix, you know, quote unquote, fix things and treat, how can we hold space for the challenges that they're having right now? Oh, I think, um, really being able to recognize that their recovery process is theirs and helping them kind of discover and explore why they're feeling anxious. And then they can also then determine when and how they want to manage it. So I, I've taken a lot of continuing education to a motivational interviewing and, um, I really love it. I'm a big believer in we don't have all the answers. Our clients typically hold it, but we're really good guides. And obviously we have a lot of knowledge, but we really have to, you know, give autonomy to our, our clients to make that change. So I think for OTs, um, recognizing when our clients are experiencing anxiety. And so often we don't always notice it. So I think a great example is if you're a pediatric OT, chances are, the parent is probably experiencing some level of anxiety, depending on where that client is in, in the process of receiving therapy. And I think holding space and understanding and, and having that um, compassion for them in order to understand maybe their behaviors a little better is really important as I'd well. Love, I'd love it if you could give us some tips or pointers on the motivational interviewing. Sure. Um, so motivational interviewing is really about being client centered. So without getting into like the nitty gritty um, details about it, it's, it's about 
exploring um, how your client can essentially make changes in their life on their own. So um, it's being very non-directive. So say I had a client that came in and they said, you know, this is an example. And maybe when the person probably wouldn't see me for this reason on their own, but they'd say, my husband is really irritated with me because he thinks I'm too controlling. And I would say, that's interesting. Okay, so I hear that you're frustrated with your husband because he thinks that you are controlling. And they would say, yeah, yeah, I, I don't think I'm that controlling. You know, I just like things done in a certain way. Okay. So I'm curious, um, when you like things done in a certain way, what does that do for you? So I'm not psychoanalyzing them by any means, but I'm exploring what it is they're saying by being reflective and asking, um, re-asking them questions or maybe taking out details and then rephrasing it so they can reflect on it and then give me more information. But motivational interviewing is such an amazing way to be able to really connect with your clients without them feeling like you're pushing anything on them. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned two keywords then, and one was curious. I think it's so important that we remain curious and deeply listen to what our clients are saying without judgment and imposing our own values and our belief systems. And then the second thing that you said was connect and to open up the doors for connection by providing a safe space for them to talk and for them to problem solve through their own challenges as well and to get to their own goal is really important by building that therapeutic relationship between us. Yes, and I think so often when people experience anxiety, they think something's wrong with them and that they're gonna be judged or now that they have anxiety that it's gonna hold them back from their dreams and, and that's just not the case. And I, I always say, you know, to the individuals I'm working with, you know, this is a very safe, safe, safe space. I will never judge you. I am here as a partner. We're going to work through this together. And you're an incredible individual. You know, just because you're experiencing anxiety doesn't mean anything is wrong with you. Um, and I think the way we speak about mental health really needs to change. We need to normalize it. Absolutely. But I still feel like there is a lot of stigma around mental health compared to physical health issues. So yeah. we have a long way to go. But I think, again, as a profession, we have so much that we can bring to the table. We have so much that we can offer as OTs. So really stepping up into our power. We can. Oh, absolutely. And I think the thing that we can do that no other profession truly knows how to do is how to take our skill set, apply to different quote problem areas and um, integrated into the person's daily life so they can be the best version of themselves. Um, I, I have had friends who've gone to traditional therapy and they, and believe me, I've worked with psychologists and other mental health professionals or mental health therapists and they are absolutely amazing. Like they don't fit into this category at all. But I have had friends who have gone to therapy that have said they gave me these um, strategies and then I didn't know how to implement them. Or I was having a panic attack in the car and I didn't know what to do. Or I didn't have my toolbox with me in the car. We, 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 we already take care of that when we're doing the occupational profile and we're asking about their daily life and routines and habits. We problem solve that with our clients so they're prepared to manage their anxiety in their everyday life, not just when they're with us via in our office or on a Zoom call or however it may be. Absolutely. And it's looking at their real world problem in the real life context, 
of their day-to-day -day life and coming up with these real world outcomes. We don't want something that's been fabricated that may not be sustainable or even suitable for their lifestyle. Absolutely. And like what you said, Rhiannon, it is, it is a lifestyle change. If you are a person who is really struggling with anxiety, it is going to be a lifestyle change. It is looking at exercise and sleep and diet and water and um, how much caffeine you're consuming and how much alcohol you're consuming, even chocolate. Chocolate has a certain level of caffeine. And even thinking about, am I engaging in valued occupations in my day? Am I holding space for myself? Um, yeah, it's not just about getting these strategies and practicing them when it's convenient. It is an entire lifestyle change. And the one thing I do want to say is um, in the training that I have taken, every single person I've trained with has said, if you are taking anti-anxiety medication, it is very hard to truly manage your anxiety. Your brain is not able to rewire itself when you're on anti-anxiety medication. So if you are someone who is truly wanting to manage their anxiety, I highly recommend considering doing a lifestyle type change because that's really what's going to make the biggest long-term impact. Hmm. I know. And so often we are quick to reach for the medication or the quick option or the magic pill. Yes. But we need to do the groundwork and the hard work. We need to learn to trust our bodies. You know, deep breathing is actually more effective than Xanax um, because deep breathing puts it compresses the vagus nerve, which down regulates the sympathetic nervous system by kicking on the parasympathetic. Um, and a couple of people, I put something on my Instagram and I actually had a couple of people message me saying, oh my gosh, I tried deep breathing in the midst of panic attack and it completely worked, but they didn't understand the reason why people were telling them to do it. And again, when you understand the neuroscience behind why we're telling you to do these things, I think it's just so empowering and it makes you trust your body. And that's key. Anxiety comes from fear and it also comes from fear of not trusting your body. So when you can develop a better connection with your own body and truly trust it, that's when you can really manage and overcome anxiety. Hmm. Let's go back to the strategies there or the lifestyle solutions that OTs can help with other, with, with their clients. What are the top five strategies or lifestyle solutions you'd be suggesting they talk about? Top five, sleep, exercise, diet, water, and regular um, mindfulness meditation or even just mental breaks. So that would be like the fifth category. Those are absolutely necessary. Um, exercise can be used to decrease anxiety, um, long-term, but also in the moment, just 20 to 30 minutes of exercise in the moment can drastically decrease amygdala activation, but it also does decrease amygdala activation, um, over time as well. And, and sometimes there, there are those of us who are born with more activated amygdalas. Um, that is true. So if you think you are a naturally anxious person, which I would probably put myself in that category, I'm definitely wired to be more naturally, naturally anxious. We definitely have to be aware that we need to get enough exercise or we're just going to feel more anxious more often. And then when it comes to sleep, sleep provides another protective um, mechanism around the amygdala where it is just, it is naturally less activated, but it's also not as easily activated 
if something that is triggering happens. So sleep is super important. I think sleep is one of the things, especially in America, that sometimes people are proud to be like, oh, I'm a night owl, or I never sleep, or even mom's fresh after postpartum. It's almost like a badge of honor we wear. But sleep is foundational um, just for optimal functioning. Diet is everything. People really need to pay attention to what they're putting into their body. Um, I mean, I by no means am perfect at diet. That's something I'm always working on because you know, when I get busy, the first thing to go is diet. And I've got like a bag of chocolate chips and like, just, you know, eating to keep going. And it just, then after a while, you're just like, why do I feel this way? Oh, because I haven't been eating very well, you know, and then, um, water, you know, water is, I mean, important for everything, but that's one of the easiest things I tell clients, drink enough water. If you're going to start with one thing, it's easy, do it, set a schedule, put it in your daily routine, have reminders, you need to drink enough water. And then the mental breaks, mindfulness, meditation, it, um, it really just helps you gain this sense of clarity and calmness. I mean, it, it really helps with the amygdala, but also um, it helps increase vagal tone, which um, can help with deactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. And um, it's just so important. And even for myself, I, I try to incorporate mindfulness on a regular basis, but it's not always easy, you know? So it's making this active, conscious, intentional effort to make it a part of your day. Mm -hmm. And so with all these categories that you mentioned, and particularly the diet side of things, what sort of things are you doing with your clients around this? Because yeah. I know this can be a tricky area OTs yeah. often ask and about. I would say, um, I, cause I haven't taken a lot of continuing education on diet and by, by no means am I, am I an expert, but I'll go through with clients and say, what do you eat on a regular basis? And often it's like high sugar foods. So then just educate them on, you know, how that can spike anxiety, especially when you have like sugar rush and just more fruits, vegetables. I give them very generic terms. Then obviously if they needed more guidance, I would recommend they go to a dietitian or a nutritionist. Um, there are OTs though that I know specialize or are looking into specializing in nutrition. I think that's amazing. I'm just not one of them. So that I would say is probably one of the areas that I would have to refer out to. The other areas I feel fairly comfortable with, but, but that's one of the ones where I don't have a lot of super specific suggestions. Hmm. No, that's great. That's great. And you said that you are more likely to experience those anxious feelings. You're one of those people that's a little bit more hardwired towards that. What do you do when you're stressed or anxious? It depends on where my anxiety is coming from. So if I notice I'm just being triggered more easily, I will definitely engage in deep breathing just to like calm myself down. I will drink a bunch of water because it's probably one of the things I have not been doing. Um, and exercise it will always make me feel better afterwards and then i focus on getting enough sleep which actually is much easier now my daughter's one so i wouldn't say i have like a baby baby anymore um and that's made a huge effort um i communicate really uh well with my husband about like needs if i'm feeling off i'll say hey can i just go downstairs and go for a run for like 15 minutes just uh shake this anxious energy um and also Exercise is really great too, because when you're in fight or flight, if you feel the need for the fight or flight, um, it's, it's going to decrease your anxious feeling. 
But if I find myself truly worrying where it's more cortex-based, I actually worry journal. And I consciously and intentionally will worry and, or um, process my worries in my journal. So I've gotten in the habit during the pandemic of doing this, um, especially because we've had two large fires near our home um, in, since the pandemic has started. And we didn't ever needed to activate or evacuate, but it was close enough where we kind of had to, th had to think about it. And so I, this is how I processed it. I said, okay, there's this giant fire. We're in the middle of the pandemic. I could panic if I wanted to, but what really matters that we're safe and we're, we're, we're with each other. So I packed a little bag for my daughter and just set it off to the side with all her essentials. And then in my mind, I had a list of all the things my husband and I would need. And that was my plan. And once I made my plan for the what if, what if the worst case scenario were to happen, it essentially took away my anxiety because it wasn't worrying. There was nothing fueling my fear anymore. I felt in control of the situation. So I, I'm definitely a planner and I've chosen if I can't do anything with this worry, if I start thinking about coronavirus and COVID-19 and if it's going to affect me or my family, if there's nothing I can do about that, I really, I may sometimes out loud, I'll go, you know what brain stop. I'll, what is it? Dr. Pittman always says this. She says, cortex stop scaring my amygdala. You know, and just communicating and saying, like, I don't want space for this worry right now. I need to cut it out. And the more you do that, the less you're actually going to worry. You only have the capacity to have one channel on in your brain. So if you can turn off the worry channel by thinking about something else, that will also decrease your anxiety. Mm, amazing. And it's so much easier said than done, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm someone where I study this, that this is like my passion, and I still experience anxiety. So, I mean, it's, this, it's a lifestyle, you know, movement where you're choosing to be conscious of all these things. So you're not living with this high level of anxiety all the time. Awesome. Well, let's start to wrap it up and head to our three rapid fire questions. So number one, Sarah, in one sentence, how do you describe OT? Okay. Oh, I feel like this is just so broad, but this is the best way I can define it. Occupational therapy is a profession that helps people engage in anything and everything that is meaningful to them. Love it. Number two, what's one healthy lifestyle habit listeners can implement today? Exercise, 20 to 30 minutes, three times a week, just exercise. Move your body. Number three, if you could only offer one piece of advice to OTs, what would it be? Surround yourself with motivated, uplifting, and encouraging people. That's yes. Advice. Find your tribe. Yes, find your tribe, 100%. I love it. And I love connecting with other like-minded, open-minded, radiant, vibrant people like yourself. So it was such a pleasure to have you on today. Same here. Thank you for letting me share this space with you, Rhiannon. and it's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'll see you later. Bye. Alrighty. So how can everyone find you, Sarah, if they want to connect? Yeah. So you can email me at S N is Nancy O. R G R at midwestern.edu or you can also find me my social media is sarah ann anderson on facebook and then i'm also sarah.ann.anderson on instagram sweet see you sarah
That's it, guys. I hope this episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that it inspires you to take action. If you haven't already, come over and join our Facebook group family where we connect and collaborate. You can find us really easy just by searching the OT Lifestyle Movement in Facebook. If you did love this episode, I'd be super grateful if you shared it. You can take a screenshot right now and share it on Instagram or on Facebook so we can connect with more amazing, like-minded, open-minded OTs. The more we share the OT Lifestyle Movement, the more we can create a ripple effect. And if you do love the podcast, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review so we can be found more easily. That's it. Go out, create the epic change that you seek in the world because the world is ready for you. Carpe diem, guys.